most people work in their business. They sweep the floors, they service the customers, that kind of stuff. Smart people work on their business. They delegate, they create systems and things like that. Welcome to the High Voltage Business Builders, a show where we interview entrepreneurs growing and scaling their income through e-commerce and showing you the path to make your first or next million. All right, folks, welcome to the call. Appreciate you joining me back here on the High Voltage Business Builders. I have a good guest today, I guess probably a great guest in terms of my opinion. We've been coordinating the activities of trying to make this happen for a while now because he's super busy, but I'm very honored that he's taking some time this morning with me to jump on roll. Welcome to the call, sir. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So we talk about a lot of things on this podcast. We've dumped topics from world to business, to life, to mindset, to all kinds of activities. I know obviously you've been big in building businesses and scaling them and acquiring them and turning them over. And that may be the most interesting thing probably to talk about today as how you build up these companies or acquire new companies, turn them around and kind of teach people how to do this process. So while we get into that, let's unpack a little bit about who you are in terms of that topic too. Sure. What can I tell you? Well, give us some experience about how you're acquiring companies, because I know it's a big thing with you in terms of what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, you've built some great companies, digital marketer, et cetera, have been some great and wonderful companies you've had some experience with, but you're showing people right now how to go out and acquire assets that are kind of depreciated in the market and then flipping them around for higher sale, if I'm not mistaken. Well, actually, uh, see, I think you can acquire anything. I, I like to acquire healthy businesses that are earning a profit more than ones that are in trouble because turnarounds, although I've done quite a few of them, it's a whole lot more work. So. Yeah, I mean, my my background is I practiced law for about 13 years. I started out in real estate when I was 18, got my license, then insurance and securities at 19 and 20, put together a bunch of syndications, raised a lot of money, did a lot of developments of houses, especially single family housing, all up and down the East Coast, all the way down into the Caribbean, then uh, went on to open a law practice and and did that. And throughout the whole time of doing all these things, I just was always fascinated in terms of acquisitions and divestiture. So buying and selling. And so starting with single family homes and then going into neighborhoods of homes. And then when I got my securities license, I, I was fortunate enough to be taken under the wing of an investment banker up in New York at Prudential Securities, who kind of taught me about leverage buyouts and how you can acquire businesses using the assets of the businesses to finance them. So basically, not coming out of pocket with any money. And yeah. just over the, you know, 35, 40 years since I started doing that, I have really kind of, for me, found that there's a sweet spot in the, what we call the middle and lower middle market companies that are a couple million dollars up to about a hundred and that you can acquire those with very, very little, if any money out of pocket. And so over the course of all these years, I've done about a thousand acquisitions and divestitures. I help people do that. I teach people how to do that. And I just find it to be really, really fun because you can buy profitable businesses that are, you know, 600,000 of them a year close. Just people just, just for whatever reason, usually, yeah. you know, divorce, family, relocation, death, health, all those things that cause people to do it. They can't sell their businesses. And because 80% of the ones that get listed don't even sell. And they're not sure what to do. So the opportunity to come in and give them the ability to get something for their business, albeit over time, is very appealing to them. And so that's kind of what what I've found to be a sweet spot of focus. Okay, so there is a lot of things <laughs> that we could dig into and everything you just said from the real estate side to your background to, of course, the business. 
let's figure out which direction to go here. So since you most recently talked about businesses and a thousand of them, how does it initially comes to my mind? How do you maintain, manage, or oversee a thousand acquisitions in, in that time frame? Yeah. So keep in mind, that's not, I, I don't have a thousand companies in my portfolio. I've got 38 companies in my portfolio that are holding companies that are in that's different true. verticals. But the way that you do it is you basically become a deal person and you think of like Michael Gerber wrote a great book called The E-Myth, right? And mm -hmm. um, in that book, he says, most people work in their business. They sweep the floors, they service the customers, that kind of stuff. Smart people work on their business. They delegate, they create systems and things like that. To me, there's another level. The other level is that if you work above the business, then the business basically is something that you perceive to be your product or service. Like it's not the products or services that the business sells. My product or service is the business itself. I'm trying to build value in these businesses so that I can sell them for several years of their profits, which is how businesses sell. So the way that you are able to do a lot of that is that you stay off the org chart. You don't, you don't have a job title. Then that means you don't have a job and you've got operators for the businesses. And very often you'll even find that when you acquire a business, the entrepreneur that's in it is happy to stay there. They just don't like being an entrepreneur. They don't like having all that responsibility. And so there's a lot of ways to keep operators in businesses. And then, you know, you can go everywhere from let's keep the people in there to let's find key employees that are in the business that were basically running it anyway, and then give them the opportunity to have equity with you to maybe there are consultants or advisors or independent contractors the business is using that can come in and run it. If that's not good, then you can go out to your network. If that's not good, you can acquire a competitor and then merge two businesses into one and keep one of the operators. You can even go out and get a recruiting firm to help you find the people you need. So operators, not a problem. The problem is when you are the operator. Yeah, that is a big one. And that's one of the things we work on. And you know, to a degree, what we do on the Amazon side of building the brands and then taking them direct to consumer is obviously getting people in a position from the very beginning all the way through the expectation of 24 months or exit that they understand that they're not the only key operator in the business as they grow it up. If they cannot understand how to delegate or do the actual business component of it, they're going to set themselves up for a failure in the end. And obviously, you know that way better than I do. But it's definitely something that's important in, in all business and most entrepreneurs don't get it. There are the obviously my experience, three things that fail in the business. I'm sure you can extol 20 of them, but you know, knowledge, capitalization, and in some instances, having most recently consulted with some of these Amazon aggregators in the business market and acquisitions, it's overcapitalization without the right knowledge of how to apply it to the business, which yeah. creates huge opportunities. Many of them are going to consolidate. What do you see in the market right now in terms of where it's going? Like with the acquisitions, has it changed much for you? Has the opportunities increased? Is it decreasing? Yeah, the opportunities I think are only increasing. The, the cool thing is, is like where I'm looking for businesses that have been around for ideally five to 10 years or more, there's a lot of baby boomers that own those businesses. There's 50 million of them that'll be retiring over the next 10 years. There's, there's 12 million of those that own businesses that are worth about $10 trillion in total value. So over the next decade, it will continue to be just an, a constant supply of businesses just from those people. But yeah. then you've got all the people that are having challenges with maybe there's a better opportunity for them to earn more money someplace else. They've got a profitable business. They don't really know how to scale and grow it. And they're looking at the job market right now where just changing a job can get you 12% more than what you're making right now. And they're saying, maybe the allocation of my resource of time isn't best spent in this business that I haven't been able to get to take off. So I'm going to go over here 
and get a great job that pays me a lot of money and put all this tough entrepreneurial stuff behind me. That's a huge category of people too. The prices across all industries for businesses, what they are selling at has gone from a 3.8 last quarter to a 4.5 this yep. quarter. So that alone, you know, for a professionally managed business, not for owner-operated. Owner-operated is still hanging around 2.5, but private equity values, what the yeah. companies are willing to pay businesses that are typically 10 million in sales, 2 million in EBITDA or profit, that's gone up to over 15. And most of the companies that I'm talking to say they're paying between 10 and 20X on profits as they're acquiring now, most of the larger acquirers. So there's a huge opportunity, I think, because of the demand for businesses, the $5 trillion that's sitting on the sidelines in dry powder in private equity and family offices and SPACs and all those guys to buy these owner-operated businesses, professionalize them, put in management, make them appealing to a wider range of buyers, and then flip them out after you grow them or combine them with a couple to private equity at a significant multiple that's typically eight times or more the value that you acquired. And that can be done over a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And my experience as well, and I'm glad to hear you say that, that when you get above the five or 10 million, it's actually easier to sell those companies. They yeah, have the upside absolutely. potential, operational independence. You're looking at the institutional capital. So there's a lot more, like you said, dry powder, a lot more money. It's a lot harder to sell the $1 million to $5 million businesses. And I and, think and that's where I've seen a lot it, of it. Yeah. If you think about it, it's just based on risk, right? Those smaller businesses are usually, usually owner operated. And that means that if the owner were not there, then the business is going to fail at some point, um, like sales or marketing or ops or whatever. And so when they're professionally managed, the universe of buyers instantly opens up, but that universe of buyers doesn't want to spend a whole bunch of time because it's the same amount of effort roughly to do diligence, a deal that's a million dollars as it is for a deal that's 10 or 20 or 50. And so while they're dipping down lower, they're still not coming down into that market that you're talking about. Well, they're not looking to buy a job, right? I'm not looking to buy a job. So when right. I see a lot of those businesses, I see them as jobs, just other jobs. And you mentioned the, you know, the baby boomers. And that's one of the biggest things I noticed is a lot of those folks have been working them for jobs for a long time. And there's the, the family doesn't want to get involved. Kids don't want to get involved. The upside potential. The kids is are going to be in. Instagram stars. They're Instagram <laughs> they stars. They're on YouTube. They're all at TikTok and Twitter or whatever. And, you know, yeah. twerking out there in the world. But these folks don't understand. So a lot of them are shutdowns. And I, I get that. There's a big opportunity to approach those folks and say, hey, you know what? We can kind of take that on. We sort of do that in the one to five million range right now, knowing there's an upside potential to flip it up to institutional capital because Absolutely. we have the knowledge and ability to operate on scale. So if we bring people to the position of understanding the basic fundamentals of that and getting to a position where they could reach one to five million on their own as an operator, then we can step in and obviously help them sell it and then take operational control of it, which is what others like. And there's where the SPACs and the whole aggregator they came in. But with many of them, and I'm sure you've talked to a few too, they are capital heavy and knowledge light on the operational components of those types of models. Is that your experience as well? I see it. Yeah. Like the good, especially private equity, the good ones really bring operational skills. They found out about 10 years ago to 15, they really saw that that was like professionalization, making a company actually not dependent on the owner's yeah. And having really high quality management is important. So a lot of the, including us, private equity investors have their own teams that they'll bring in. Now, here's the challenge with like Thrasio and Perch and a lot of those guys is, you know, their idea is, well, we've got these brilliant MBA professional management people that have run <laughs> giant companies and yep. they buy scrappy bootstrap companies 
that are maybe playing, you know, with the Amazon algorithm for ranking or things like yep. that. And so they think they're going to come in and improve these businesses. But the truth is they're not street fighter, scrappy, smart people. They're no. MBA finance type people. And Absolutely. so they come into a company that's been a scrappy bootstrap and they aggregate them across things like Thrasio in particular, where it's like, yeah, it's just any Amazon FBA company. Well, there's not a lot of merger synergies in aggregating completely disparate companies. That, no, that, there are not. No, there aren't. Yeah, right? You, yeah. Yeah, you can't save a business that's been bootstrapped on certain kinds of products. I'm seeing them buying like two to three SKUs, et cetera. And I look at these things and they're in mass market appeal. They're in saturation components. The one out of Canada that I was talking to the other day had bought a couple million dollars worth of properties. And I'm like, man, you spent the wrong money on the wrong right. brand. Well, tell us right. why I had the whole exec team on the call, right? Tell us why. Surprisingly enough, they didn't call me back after that because I wasn't extremely, <laughs> I wasn't extreme. The end result was, you know, probably need to either get some serious operators in your business or just get back the 4 million left in capital you have and walk away from the deal and save some face. Because if you don't figure out what you've done wrong with why you purchased these two businesses, you're, you're going to burden all your capital. We have more capital, they said, right? Oh gosh, like it's scary. They have more capital. Like, yeah, great. It's, you're just going to burn it up. So how are you approaching, obviously you got some, so you got a marketing engine, of course, and a network. I know you do. It's pretty deep. I'm mm -hmm. assuming you have a pretty easy ability, but if somebody wanted to get out and find these people, where's the fastest way for them to discover some of those folks who are, who are sitting on that line saying, Hey, sure. I'd like to sell this, or I'd like to get, you know, out of this or whatever. And, and there's good deals we have. Where do you find those? I think the, the first thing is you have to figure out what you're looking for. So I'm yeah. really big on acquisition criteria. You need to know what it is that you want in terms of where does your skill set lie? Where is your experience? What are your superpowers? And then that will tell you what are the industries that I'm interested in and what can I solve for? And so I start like whenever we go in and we look at a candidate. And so I'll go a couple of ways. The way to find deals to get deal flow is to figure out what is your acquisition criteria so that you know what is the target you're looking for. Then the easiest place that I have found is to go to people that have already aggregated the attention and eyeballs of the people that you want to acquire. So that would be groups, LinkedIn, Meetup, Facebook. That would be, you know, where they're, where they're aggregating, talking together. And masterminds are fantastic. Speaking at events, I find to be very helpful. Trade shows where they're all in one place and you can go around and talk to all of the vendors, not yeah. necessarily the attendees, but like if I'm looking for a MarTech company, a marketing technology company, I'm going to go to a marketing tech convention or right. trade show, and there's going to be 300 exhibitors that are all marketing technology companies where I'll get to talk to quite a few of them. The big ones will just have people there that aren't really that great to network with or, you know, do a deal with. Yeah. But then there's all these kind of smaller companies where very often one of the owners is there in the booth and you have the opportunity to go around and talk to a whole bunch of people. And then you're just finding out, hey, you know, what's going on in your business? You know, it looks like you're doing some cool stuff here. Yeah. And then you get into a conversation of what are the challenges that they're facing? And that generally leads to, to me, I find that just kind of leading with help. How can, you know, oh, it's, yeah, you know, we're having a hard time with this. You know, oh, you know, one of the things I've found works really well. And one of the companies that we've got is this. And they're like, oh, that's really interesting. If you'd like to talk about it, you know, I know you're busy here, but we can hop on a call sometime in the future and talk about it. That giving to get whether it's speaking or content on social or a blog or anything, you know, that, that I find to be one of the best ways to generate deal flow. Then I say, okay, when we sit down and have the conversation, what's the problem that we're going to solve for? Do you need more leads? Do you need more infrastructure or people? Do you need a high, higher average AOV? Do you need more profitability? 
Do you need more innovation? Those can all be solved through acquisitions, which yeah. then I can offer to help with. And so that leads to typically a lot of opportunities to do deals. And the way I do it is basically I tell them, you know, the way I start with is I don't want to ask you for equity in your company. I don't want to ask you to sell me your company. I'm happy to help beyond what we've talked about. If you'd like to go into a deep dive, let's do a half day consult. And then basically I have a 25K for four hours, half day consult that I do. And that either leaves them with at least 10X return on that investment during that time. Cause as you know, it's not that hard to add a lot of value when somebody's actually got a business. <laughs> and then, yeah. um, but then very often they'll say, well, what would it take to have you come in and help? And then yeah. that's the opportunity to do, to do that. So that, that's what I've found to be most effective. And then, you know, obviously referrals from people that, you know. Yeah. Network, of course, that's big, but so institutional capital, obviously we know it's sitting out there large. There's a lot of cash flow sitting on the sidelines. How are you taking advantage of that through maybe relationships, networking, banking relationships to capitalize where you're not necessarily rolling your own cash into these kinds of deals? Yeah, it's really funny. We've been talking a lot lately that we have assembled a fair amount of cash to be available to, to acquire. And we haven't been able to spend it because we end up more than often having those conversations with entrepreneurs. And then they're like, well, how do I get you to come into business? And they just give you the equity. So that's kind of an interesting thing that we've seen happening. But in terms of accessing capital, I mean, it, it's very, very easy. It's just having conversations with people and even cold outreach. One of the guys that I work with has raised 150 million in the last nine months just by basically knocking on doors. So go to a deal book or Crunchbase and and find out who are the private equity funds and the and the family offices and SPACs that are interested in Amazon or whatever it is that you've got. And then it's pretty easy to reach out and see who the players are. Like HVAC, there's a lot of activity in the HVAC aggregation market right now for rollups. And so there are quite a few players. There's over a hundred funds that are very specifically interested in acquiring HVAC companies. There's 105,000 HVAC companies in the United States. It's yeah. pretty easy to see who those people are and then reach out to them if that's the play that you yeah. want to make. Well, and with a MarTech company coming in, it's probably, well, it's a lot easier to find usually those types of institutional businesses, like you're mentioning, don't have a lot of legion, a lot of pipeline and a lot of flow. And, and the internet is not one of their major tools. They're cold uh, calling. That's how they they're, they're like, they're just call. basically cold calling. Yeah, which is impressive that they've stayed afloat this long with a cold calling right. business or even just basic referral business. Those are institutional things. We have a, a gentleman coming in right now who's purchased a 30-year-old health and services company, a localized company that he's going to be taking online. You know, the, the owner is walking out and he's purchased this company and it's like, okay, we want to get him on Amazon. We want to get him out there. We want to get him in the you know marketing world. And it's mm -hmm. going to take that 30 years of book for business and, and start out into the marketing world. And, and I expect he will do really well. Very smart. In the coming year. Yeah. We uh, understand that institutional capitalized uh, home offices, et cetera. We had an opportunity to raise around 50 to 100 million in verbally confirmed funds in November of last year, but had to watch to see where the market was going with on our side of the house on the Amazon and aggregation space and said, mm, I don't think we want to push into that just yet while we watch to see what the market does. A lot of capitulation and consolidation have occurred. And now it appears that most of the acquisitions for those have stopped temporarily. The same experience are you seeing as that on that end of your, at least on the aggregator space? Cause I do know you touched it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I, most of what I find, I don't like institutional money because it's typically two and 20 type deals where they want a pref, they want an 18% internal rate of return. They want you to get your 20% after, and it's just not, yep. that's not rich it enough for me like what, a job really fast all of a sudden i was like it hey does, yeah. I, I don't want to be in this job that's not the how this is supposed to work 
Right. Yeah. So we like we like private money much, much better. Private money is very excited to go from, you know, earning a one percent <laughs> return that they're yep. getting in a lot of cash that they've got into something that's more in the six to ten range. And so that's really when we're raising money where we typically find it's the easiest to do. Yeah. And most of these things are, are coming up very ripe. There's a whole load and portfolio of, I know, of brands that are about to come on the market in the next two, three months due to that consolidation and, and churn down. And so I'm kind of looking out here going, hmm, there's probably going to be some really great brands hidden in some of those institutional things that were totally being mismanaged. And literally what I find is a lot of those brands, and, and you're, you're saying some of the same thing, which is great to hear, but they're, you know, the knowledge component was enough to get them to where they are. They just, in most instances, they didn't understand what they did right. They don't understand what to do next. And most of them are very unfunded. Uh, yep. Their literal brands are just missing the capitalization and expansion to, to take over market share, especially on platforms like Amazon, where growth is, a, is not too difficult to do when you know what to do right. the right way with brands and raise those capital uh, levels. A lot of holes. So there are a lot of holes and a lot of opportunities. Most people think in more scarcity mindset. Obviously, you think in an abundance mindset. And there's always more than enough opportunities than we can handle in a lifetime. So now it's prioritizing which ones to actually go after. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always like to say the deal of a lifetime comes along typically once a quarter. <laughs> With a quarter. <laughs> once in a well, lifetime deal comes along three, four times a year, you know. Three or four times a year. That could be about right. If, if there's enough pipeline, no doubt about it. There's a, always an opportunity. Can you buy this? Can you look at this? Can you check my business out? And they come across my desk quite often. More often than not, I'm like, nah, I probably wouldn't touch that. And I'm not sure how you got into that, but that's not something you need to stay involved in business-wise. So what is on your, like, what's on your radar right now, Roland, as we're rolling through 2022, you know, in mid of the year when we're recording this, what's on your radar for the next six months? I mean, in terms of what to acquire or, or what? Business, life, passion, pursuits, hobbies. Yeah. My passion and hobby is really, I would do this stuff for free if I had to get another job to support me doing it. Cause I just think it's so much fun. So it is truly a passion and hobby, you know, outside of that, I, I'm a, musical person. So I play and compose. I performed out for years and years. Uh, I love photography and I love travel. I'm, I'm at 153 countries, I think it is right now. And oh, so wow. no, 158 countries right now. And so I'm trying to plug those holes, but COVID is getting in my way and crazy <laughs> dictator type people and wars and things like that. Oh, but there's all that kind of crap too. Go. <laughs> Might slow you down in a few countries. You mentioned music. What kind of music are you passionate about? Like, what do you play? What do you, I, I didn't know this. This is cool. Yeah. Well, I played keyboards and out, out in bands for years and years. And then, you know, you can't help, but like I'd swap with the bass player when they had wireless bass on songs so I could run around in the audience and do stuff like that. And then uh, nice. little bits of guitar and drums, you know, you just can't, you can't help. But when you're, when you do it for that long, everybody ends up learning how to do a little bit of everything, but um, <laughs> play a little, all the pieces. And I've done everything. Session. Yeah. I've done everything from, uh, you know, being the token white guy in a 17 piece funk band to country nice. to cocktail piano and a rock. I tend to lean towards more electronic music these days just because it, there's so much that you can do and, and, it, yeah. and it's easy and you don't have to practice with a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> <laughs> you can make a one-man band nowadays. I've seen that happen quite a few. Right, um, right. Back jazz and classical was mine. And I went to nice. school on a fuel ride music scholarship playing trumpet. Oh, cool. Um, uh, what instrument? Yeah, so Trumpet was my primary. I tried to dabble in piano and stuff like that, but it's not really my coordination. I'm very right brain. So right hand, right brain at all. Nice. Coordinates very well with trumpet, but played for many, many years and through my college years as very well. Cool. So passion for music. We could have a jam session sometime. It'd be awesome. <laughs> I like um, it. Yeah. It's always been a great component. It's, it's something my kids do now. They're all into music and obviously piano is a, is a big component of our life right now as they all learn and, and find their way through that. Oh, that's a great, great way to 
create that brain and flexibility. For me, it was the creativity of the jazz that I love so much, listening to Wynton Marsalis and Miles Davis and stuff growing up and realizing that, you know, the music was just there as it was objective. I could go off the sheet, I could improvise, I could do whatever I want. And that became part of business. And it sounds like you found your way too, because business is just music to me. It's how you flow. It's how you live. It's how you the syncopation, the rhythm, the highs and the lows of the entrepreneurial world. I mean, it's all just flowing to me like music on a sheet. Well, particularly, I think if like, if you're into improv, then business is perfect because it is, you know, you have the X notes in whatever scale that you're, that you're following to work with, and they can be arranged yeah. in an infinite number of ways. And so if you've exactly. got some experience in that sort of creativity, then I think you can be less limited mentally so that you can see yep. more options. So, you know, from here I can go up a third, down a fifth, you know, whatever the things that you've that thought about to put together a lead line in music as an improvisation to yep. do that in business is much more natural because you've already done that. And so then it's just identifying, okay, well, what are the notes and what are the intervals? And what are the different patterns that I might run in this particular business, which becomes a playbook, but a playbook can be very limiting because it, by definition, well, is the way that you're supposed to do things. to a certain set. And it's like, okay, right. I'll, I'll get to your certain set of script, but then we're going to go off key real fast. Exactly. Uh, and in exactly. that case, everybody and kind of screws with them. So people who it have does. been around me long enough recognize that suddenly, you know, he's playing off a right field and there he goes jumping off a cliff again. And, and I know that I can feel the resonation with you on that because that's how we kind of do things. It makes people feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. at times because they don't understand the music. It does. And I understand your music, Roland, and I sure appreciate you coming on today and sharing some of that with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. If you like this episode, please share it with people you think will enjoy it as well. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for a brand new episode of High Voltage Business Builders. 